our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Okay, I got to warn you right up front. This is going to be one of those days where I'm going to be pushing back hard against conventional wisdom. And that means there's a pretty good chance I'm, I might offend you. Now, that's not my goal, but sometimes speaking to unpopular truths uh, has the tendency to get people a little bit uh, defensive. And I, if that's what happens, please understand, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make you angry. I'm not trying to tell you I think you're stupid or I think you're evil. But I don't think I can recall a time within recent memory when, uh, when I have seen so many people turn on a dime and start chanting in unison. I'll explain more here in just a moment. Let me, let me start by thanking the sponsors who make this program possible, including LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Great sponsors. Link to them in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Just uh, click on the link. It'll put you right in touch with them. Well, let's talk for a moment about uh, about what's going on in the world. And I know a lot of stuff has been popping off, and this is, this is the crazy thing. I know a lot of people aren't going to like this, but if you are feeling intense outrage at Russia right now, I'm going to ask you over the course of this program, to consider whether or not it's something that you arrived at naturally as, as a product of your own thinking and reasoning. And, you know, did you did you stop and consider why why is it that I'm feeling such intense anger? Why am I dumping this vodka down the drain because, you know, Russia is so bad? I'm going to submit to you that uh, there is the possibility that the outrage that many people are feeling right now is not real. And this is not because Russia is right and... And I'm one of Putin's stooges, and he pays me in rubles every time I say something nice. I'm suggesting that that outrage may have been put there by people who know you better than you know yourself. See, this is the part where people are going to get uncomfortable. Uh, what are you saying, Brian? You saying I'm being manipulated or brainwashed? And I'm suggesting that we're all being manipulated. But if you consider there have been dozens of wars with millions of casualties in the last 20 years. And if you did not feel outrage about them, what is it about this that has your attention? And the truth that I'm going to ask you to consider is that maybe it's because this is, this is where the media focus is. And right now, the narrative regarding Ukraine is very militaristic. It's very authoritarian. It's very reckless. But a lot of people feel justified because, well, look, I grew up in the 80s. I remember what it was like being a teenager growing up in the shadow of the Cold War. I remember watching Red Dawn and thinking, oh, my gosh, this could happen. I saw Rocky IV, man. I remember Drago and Russians were the enemy. Yeah, I'm asking you to consider something really difficult. And, and, and please understand, this is nothing that I wouldn't ask of myself, too. Could I be wrong? Could I be misled or manipulated into a position that has me, you know, decrying what's going on in Ukraine while turning a blind eye 
to things that my own government has been doing for years in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and Syria. Where else? Libya. Sorry, I'm losing track of all the different places that the U.S. has been involved in either drone striking or bombing or, you know, invading sovereign countries. I think one of the one of the most flagrant examples of this this kind of doublethink that we're expected to hold was uh, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. She was on one of the news programs yesterday. And her sitting there nodding her head thoughtfully. Well, we all know that it is a war crime to invade a sovereign nation. And she just sat there and nodded her head, yes, yes. And those of you with a memory longer than last week will think back to, well, gee, what exactly did the U.S. do? Well, that's different. That's, you know, we're not Putin. And Okay. I have to, I have to keep myself on a short leash, too, because I, I tend to get kind of worked up over this. Let's start with Glenn Greenwald's article on what's happening in terms of the war propaganda that's being directed at us. Now, I actually had to limit myself as, to, as far as how much time I spent on Twitter and on other social media this last week just because there is so much information out there that is just blatantly false. Oh, look, here is a picture of, uh, you know, this, uh, I think it's Miss Ukraine. And she's holding a rifle, and she's enlisted, and she is fighting the Russians in Ukraine. No, she's not. She's posing for a photo op, and she's holding an airsoft rifle. I mean, good for her if she actually, you know, if she chooses to go and fight and defend Ukraine. You know, I'm proud of her. That's very heroic. Why do we have to pretend that a photo op with an airsoft gun is the real thing? Why do we have to pretend when we see pictures of, oh, look, here's men all proned out on the ground. Look, these are Ukrainian prisoners or Ukrainian uh, KIAs. Or these, th- then the next, di- next moment you see that same picture and it's, oh, these are Russian prisoners. And my point is, who do you believe? Who can you believe? I'm not telling you to stick your head in the sand and put your fingers in your ears and close your eyes and start chanting so you don't have to acknowledge this. I'm just saying... We are being fed some of the most concentrated propaganda because there ain't no propaganda like war propaganda. But so much of it is unverified or unverifiable. And some of it's just so blatantly false. It's actually become memes now, making fun of the ghost of Kiev, you know. Oh, who is it? Is it George Floyd? Because I've heard, I've seen at least one meme, you know, showing that this is, this is the guy who shot down six Russian jets. And when war is going on, there is an intense amount of propaganda. And I'm asking you, be extra careful that you don't get swept up in the tide of groupthink and find yourself chanting in unison a message that really didn't originate from your own thinking or from your own conclusions. Now, none of that, despite what some may think, none of that is being said in support of Putin or Russia or war in general, for that matter. Here's how Glenn Greenwald puts it. He says, Every useful or pleasing claim about the war, no matter how unverified or subsequently debunked, spreads rapidly, while dissenters are vilified as traitors or Kremlin agents. He says, In the weeks leading up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, those warning of the possible dangers of U.S. involvement were assured that such concerns were baseless. The prevailing line insisted that nobody in Washington's even considering, let alone advocating, the U.S. become militarily involved in a conflict with Russia. Now, that concern was not based on the belief that the U.S. would actively seek such a war, 
but rather on the oft unintended consequences of being swamped with war propaganda and the high levels of tribalism, jingoism, and emotionalism that accompany it. But of course that was ignored. And it didn't matter how many wars one could point to in history that began unintentionally with unchecked, dangerous tensions spiraling out of control. Anyone warning of this obviously dangerous possibility was met with the straw man cliche. You're arguing against a position that literally no one in D.C. is defending. But as Glenn Greenwald points out, less than a week into this war, that can no longer be said. One of the media's most beloved members of Congress, Representative Adam Kinzinger, Kinzinger, rather, from Illinois, on Friday explicitly and emphatically urged that the U.S. military be deployed to Ukraine to establish a no-fly zone. Let's break down what that would mean. In other words, U.S. soldiers would order Russia not to enter Ukrainian airspace and would directly attack any Russian jets or other military units which disobeyed. Now, that would, by definition and design, immediately ensure that the two countries with by far the world's largest nuclear stockpiles would be fighting one another all over Ukraine. Now, Kinzinger's fantasy that Russia would instantly obey U.S. orders due to rational calculations is directly at odds with the prevailing narratives about Putin now having now become an irrational madman who's taken leave of his senses, not just metaphorically, but medically, and is prepared to risk everything for conquest and legacy. By the way, that's not the first time such a deranged proposal has been raised. Days before Kinzinger unveiled his plan, a reporter asked Pentagon spokesman John Kirby why Biden has thus far refused this confrontational posture. The Brookings Institution's Ben Witts on Sunday demanded regime change in Russia. The president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, celebrated that now the conversation has shifted to include the possibility of desired regime change in Russia. So let's think about that for one second. Having the U.S. risk global nuclear annihilation over Ukraine is an indescribably insane view, as one realizes after just a few seconds of sober reflection. We had a reminder of this Sunday morning when Putin ordered his nuclear forces on high alert, reminding the planet that uh, he has the power to use weapons of mass destruction after complaining about the West's response to his invasion of Ukraine. But it's completely unsurprising that it's already being suggested. We're going to come back to Glenn Greenwald's article. And again, if I if I haven't offended you too deeply, please hang with me. I believe you have the ability to sift fact from fiction. But I'm warning you've got to be extra on guard right now because the propaganda's flying. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. Hey, that food storage is looking pretty smart right about now, wouldn't you say? Let me give you an idea here on uh, some of the things you could enjoy. First of all, 45% off all ready-wise emergency food supplies and uh, free shipping on all orders. So there's there's a couple of things to to save you a buck or two. How about the uh, ReadyWise entree and breakfast package? I mean, you can choose from some great grab and go buckets. Here's the 60 serving meat, 20 serving rice package. Um oh, I like this one. The 120 serving freeze-dried fruit package. And again, 
45% savings off the retail price and save you some money, bring some peace of mind knowing that you have food stores should tough times ever come for some inexplicable reason, which we can't begin to put our fingers on right now. Okay, sarcasm off. Anyway, the link is in my show notes, lifesavingfood.com. Back to uh, back to Glenn Greenwald's article about propaganda about Ukraine becoming authoritarian, militaristic, and reckless. One of the things he points out here is that uh, having the U.S. Uh, risk global annihilation over Ukraine is a really insane view. Like, we should just impose a no-fly zone. And, you know, I know this is going to be a hard thing to consider, but in the course of today's show, I'm going to ask you to step out of your righteous mindset as a firm, red-blooded American who loves freedom and the flag and to put yourself in the shoes of the leader of Russia for just a moment and to, to set aside the caricatures that he is an evil, you know, insane, maniacal, man, the next Hitler, right? We finally found him. There he is. And just consider some of the things that led up to this confrontation that's taking place right now because it's... It's convoluted, but it is not uh, that difficult to see that someone wants conflict. And I don't believe that uh, it is Putin alone who wants conflict. I think that uh, this is a guy who just got backed into a corner and put his foot down and said, enough. That doesn't make it right, and it doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, suffering and sorrow taking place because of this. But if we can only see it from this this dimension where, well, it's all his fault and he's the reason for all of this, um, I promise you're not seeing the bigger picture. There are more more people at play, more influences at play here, trying to see those and recognize them so that we don't get swept up into supporting something that is indefensible. This is it's really important that we that we take the time, breathe deeply, and think before we commit to a particular worldview on this. Glenn Greenwald says, the reason I devoted the first 15 minutes of my live video broadcast last Thursday about Ukraine, not to the history that led us here. He says, there's a reason I devoted the first 15 minutes, not to the history that led us here and the substance of the conflict, but instead to the climate that arises whenever a new war erupts, instantly creating propaganda-driven, dissent-free consensus. There's no pro... There's no po... Let's try this again. There's no propaganda as potent or as powerful as war propaganda. It seems that one must have lived through it at least once as an engaged adult to understand how it functions, how it manipulates and distorts, how one can resist being consumed by it. And he says, as I examined in the first part of that video discussion, war propaganda stimulates the most powerful aspects of our psyche, our subconscious, our instinctive drives. It causes us by design to abandon reason. It provokes a surge in tribalism, jingoism, moral righteousness, and emotionalism. All powerful drives embedded through millennia of evolution. The more unity that emerges in support of an overarching moral narrative, the more difficult it becomes for anyone to critically evaluate it. And the more closed the propaganda system is, either because any dissent from it is excluded by brute censorship, or, so effectively demonized through accusations of treason and disloyalty, the more difficult it is for anyone, all of us, even to recognize one is in the middle of it. He says, when critical, when critical faculties are deliberately turned off based on a belief that absolute moral certainty has been attained, 
the parts of our brain armed with the capacity of reason are disabled. And that's why the leading anti-Russia hawks like former Obama ambassador Michael McFaul and others are demanding that no Putin propagandists, meaning anyone who diverges from his views of the conflict, even be permitted a platform. And why many are angry that Facebook has not gone far enough by banning many Russian media outlets from advertising or being monetized. Senator Mark Warner from Virginia, now using the now standard tactic of government officials dictating to social media companies what content they should or should not allow, announced back on Saturday, I'm concerned about Russian disinformation spreading online. So today I wrote to the CEOs of major tech companies to ask them to restrict the spread of Russian propaganda. Now, Glenn Greenwald says suppressing any divergent views or at least conditioning the population to ignore them as treasonous, that's how propagandistic systems remain strong. And it's genuinely hard to overstate how overwhelming the unity and consensus in the U.S. political and media circles is. This is as close to a unanimous and dissent-free discourse as anything in memory, certainly since the days following 9-11. Marco Rubio sounds exactly like Bernie Sanders, and Lindsey Graham has no even minimal divergence from Nancy Pelosi. Every word broadcast on CNN or printed in the New York Times about the conflict perfectly aligns with the CIA and Pentagon's messaging. And the U.S. public opinion has consequently undergone a radical and rapid change. While recent polling has shown large majorities of Americans opposed to any major U.S. role in Ukraine, a new Gallup poll released on Friday found 52% of Americans see the conflict between Russia and Ukraine as a critical threat to U.S. vital interests. With almost no partisan division, 56% of Republicans, 61% of Democrats. While 85% of Americans now view Russia unfavorably, while 15% have a positive opinion of it. Now he says, look, the, the purpose of these points, and indeed of this article, is not to persuade anyone that they have formed moral, geopolitical, and strategic views about Russia and Ukraine that are inaccurate. Instead, he says it's to highlight what a radically closed and homogenized information system most Americans are consuming. No matter how convinced one is of the righteousness of one's views on any topic, he says there should be a wariness about how easily that righteousness can be exploited to ensure that no dissent is considered or even heard. An awareness of how often such overwhelming societal consensus is manipulated to lead one to believe untrue claims and embrace horribly misguided responses. Now, if that stings, I'm sorry. But I don't think I would be a true friend if I didn't at least offer this caution. And I'm so grateful to Glenn Greenwald for for putting this into words. There's a reason why I consider him one of the most trustworthy sources out there, and it's not because he says only things that I like. It's because I know... He doesn't jump on the bandwagon prematurely. He thinks things through and questions and remains skeptical. And so should we. He says to believe that this is a conflict of pure good versus pure evil, that Putin bears all the blame for the conflict and the U.S., the West, and Ukraine bear none, and that the only way to understand this conflict is through the prism of war, criminality, and aggression, that's only going to take you so far. Such beliefs have limited utility in deciding optimal U.S. behavior and sorting truth from fiction, even if they're entirely correct. Just as the belief that 9-11 was a moral atrocity and that Saddam or Gaddafi or Assad was a barbaric tyrant, that'll only take them so far. 
But even with those moral convictions in place, there's a whole wide range of vital geopolitical and factual questions that have to be freely considered and, more importantly, freely debated. And this includes things like, okay, what are the severe dangers of unintended escalation with greater U.S. involvement and confrontation toward Russia? What about the mammoth instability and risks that would be created by collapsing the Russian economy and or forcing Putin from power, leaving the world's largest or second largest nuclear stockpile to a very uncertain fate? Now, he goes on. There's a bunch more questions here, but I'm going to ask you. Click on the link. It's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. See what Glenn Greenwald says and then just ask yourself, is my chain being pulled by social and mass media right now? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I really feel like I'm walking the tightrope today. Not because I'm just so edgy, right? It's not, not because I have all the answers, but... This feels like familiar territory to me. I've I have been here before where it seems like a majority of the public is is on that war bandwagon and they're screaming for blood or at least they're screaming for some kind of justice. And very few people have been able to step back and recognize that they are being steered emotionally and intellectually into a conclusion that's not their own. That's, uh, that's a little bit scary for me. It's a little bit uh, disturbing. Okay, it's a lot disturbing. So let's take a step back here for a moment. I mean, it's hard to keep up with all the fireworks that are going off right now, but I want to share with you an article from James Howard Kunstler, who does a great job of documenting how the party of chaos has blown its cover. And he covers a lot of territory here, so you're going to have to put on your jogging shoes if you want to keep up with this. James Howard Kunstler says... The Ukraine blow-up is more a humiliation for Joe Biden and his faction than for the U.S. per se. For the truth is that we have scant interest in that corner of the world, and what goes on there is none of our business and never was. Now, he says it's fair to say that the Joe Biden government dearly wanted a Russian invasion of Ukraine in order to divert attention from the Joe Biden government's war on its own people in the United States. The table was nicely laid for it over many years, including, by the way, Mr. Trump's vaunted gift of weaponry to Ukraine, which enabled and emboldened the Kiev regime to harass the Russian-speaking population of Donbass without relent. And the situation was aggravated by the deliberate negotiation unworthiness, that's a Russian term, of Joe Biden and company, who refused to discuss the chief issue between the U.S. and Russia, namely the dishonest effort in violation of written agreements dating from 1990 to enlist Ukraine in NATO and thereby to place missiles on Russia's border. The U.S. disallowed something very similar in 1962 when the old USSR tried to put uh, missiles in Cuba. Now, you're also seeing payback for the Maiden Color Revolution of 2014, engineered by John Kerry's State Department and John Brennan's CIA. Oh, you don't remember that? Time to, time to do a little bit of homework here. James Howard Kunstler says, We've been managing Ukraine backstage since then, and alas, for that poor country, um, quite deceitfully. If you bother to read the recent statements of both Joe Biden and Mr. Putin, you will see exactly why and how the situation developed. 
You'll also see an appalling difference in the quality of public utterance, as, say, the difference between Zippy the Pinhead and a Metternich. Now, he says, I'll get back to all that presently, but first, let's be clear about what Joe Biden and company seek to divert the public attention from. Are you sitting down? Okay. It's the complete implosion of all the narratives that support the Joe Biden regime and the campaign against Western Civ, more generally by the sinister likes of Klaus Schwab and his global gang of great resetters, including Bill Gates, George Soros, and many actors in America's own deep state. Let's go through that list, shall we? The COVID-19 story is blowing up, and in a very ugly way for the American people. The news is finally wriggling free of our combined news media, social media censorship machine. That news is as follows. COVID-19 was a trip laid on the world to get rid of all the irascible, to get rid of the irascible Mr. Trump and to usher in a system of digital social controls. The mRNA vaccines were all patented and ready to go before the virus even took off. The mRNA vaccines turned out to be ineffective and arguably more damaging than the COVID-19 virus. That last bit of news is now coming out in reports from the life insurance and funeral industries, which are showing an alarming increase in all causes death, especially in people under 60 years of age. Now, it's also coming out that the CDC has wildly and recklessly falsified its own data throughout the COVID crisis and that the vaccine safety trials were a complete fraud which has led to the prospect of Moderna and Pfizer losing their liability shields and recently to the crash of their price shares. I think Moderna lost over a billion dollars in price shares over the weekend. The public's also learning that they were cruelly denied early treatments with well-proven, off-label drugs that might have saved millions of lives. And yet knowing all this... Joe Biden and his Democratic Party are to this day urging Americans to go out and get vaccinated and get boosted. In the words last week of the U.S. president. So you can't be faulted if you suspect that they are deliberately trying to kill a lot of people. Now, James Howard Kunstler says the blow up of the COVID-19 story will come to horrify even those Americans hypnotically locked into mass formation and will lead to countless lawsuits and prosecutions. But in the meantime... We will be preoccupied with the blow-up of the financial system and the economy it's supposed to serve. The inflation horses are out of the barn and running wild. The Federal Reserve has finally succeeded in destroying the value of the dollar and consequently destroying the little that's left of middle-class life in the USA. At the same time, they've unleashed forces that will also destroy the fortunes of many upper-class people too as the stock and bond markets go south. Financial collapse is at hand, and he says Joe Biden doesn't want you to pay any attention to it. The Ukraine melodrama is a compelling distraction. Also, the John Durham special counsel operation gains more disturbing visibility each week. The public has been informed by his court filings that there is no longer any question as to who set the Russian collusion game in motion. That would be Hillary Clinton. Or how the FBI, DOJ, and the news media were enlisted to play their roles in it. And how the whole thing amounted to a seditious conspiracy to overthrow the chief executive. Now, James Howard Kunstler says this is extremely serious stuff. The worst scandal and the grossest institutional failure in our history. 
there will be prosecutions and punishments, and half of America will have to process their own guilt in swallowing the story and going along with it. Then there's the 2020 election narrative, that it was the fairest and most error-free contest in our history. But the evidence that the opposite is true waits in several states, hidden in cardboard boxes, thumb drives, routers, and stacks of depositions. At this late date, it can't be corrected. But there is a fair chance the public will realize it was played on that, too. And if we're very lucky, future elections will be held without dastardly Dominion vote tabulation machines or anything like them. He says the party of chaos, Joe Biden's party, doesn't want you to pay attention to any of that or a thousand other political insults they inflicted on the country from BLM and Tifa riots to their dirty deals with social media to their perversion of law enforcement to their surveillance and persecution of loyal citizens as domestic terrorists to the gender disorders in schools and sports and so on and so on. And so they invited with open arms the Russian operation against Ukraine to put an end to reckless provocations emanating from there. Joe Biden didn't have to do anything except really except pretend that in bad faith to take part in a diplomatic solution. Then he stopped doing even that. The sanctions he imposed amount to the flimsiest window dressing. And he says, now here's what I think is happening. It will happen in Ukraine. The Russian aim is to neutralize Ukraine's military capability, the means for harassing the eastern provinces known as the Donbas. That has been accomplished. Ukraine no longer has an air force, a navy, or a whole lot of munitions and weapons. It is surely in Russia's interest to to complete this operation in as few days as possible to minimize harm to civilian lives and property. And the Ukrainians appear to understand that too. The politicians and NGO organizations groomed by American sponsorship in Ukraine will be deactivated, relieved of their responsibilities, and put out of business. If Mr. Putin is, if Mr. Putin is prudent, he will not murder or persecute them. A regime friendly to Russia will eventually be installed, and keep in mind, Ukraine had been a province of Russia one way or another for more than 200 years, except for the calamitous past 30 years. And Ukraine doesn't really represent much more than an administrative and fiscal challenge. Russia's ultimate interest in this matter is to stabilize its border. Now, we in the U.S. perhaps can't appreciate that because our current government shows no interest in stabilizing our own border. And we will in the future when the party of chaos is swept out of power. But he says, I'll refrain from speculating on the much broader geopolitical repercussions of, Ukraine, of Russia's Ukraine operation since it's not over and there's still a chance for much to go awry. But the general proposition is that it represents a milestone in America's loss of global power and credibility. And we've spent the last 30 years since the fall of the USSR invading and harassing one country after another, not always with the altogether bad intentions, but always with disastrous results. And it looks like we'll have to take a break from that activity. So we, too, have much to look after and to to clean up with our own act. He says, in the awakening underway here and now, Americans will see how many of the ills and derangements of recent years are products of our own deep state aligned with a perfidious perfidious party of the left and other global actors. He says, we've harmed ourselves terribly and we can't seem to stop, and we must stop it, beginning with calling off the COVID-19 vaccine crusade. He says, there will come a day, I predict, and then the people who brought on all this grief are going to have to answer for it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. You can call her at 435-703-4522. I should probably tell you Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Bottom line is, if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, particularly the great state of Utah, Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage are the ones you want to contact to make things happen when time is of the essence. I've even included a link in the show notes where you can click on it, and it'll take you right to her email if you need to contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, let's talk about uh, authoritarianism here at home. I know, I know everyone's attention right now is across the sea and, you know, standing in solidarity with Ukraine. But uh, have you heard, you know, prior to the president's uh, State of the Union address, which is coming up, I think, this week, apparently they're putting a permanent fence around the U.S. Capitol. Got a great article here from James Bovard about how that permanent Capitol fence will make America look like an authoritarian state. Listen to his take on this. James Bovard says, Spooked by the threat of anti-Biden trucker convoys heading to Washington, high fences will reportedly return around the U.S. Capitol in the coming days. When President Biden gives his State of the Union speech, I guess that's coming up tomorrow, he will have no fears of hearing any caterwauling from average Americans who are being impoverished and injected thanks to his policies. Hundreds of National Guard troops will also be deployed on the streets of Washington, perhaps finally vanquishing the local epidemic of double parking and jaywalking. Now, he says any fence that is erected around the Capitol will be designed to protect sanctity, not safety. After the clash between protesters and police on January 6th of 2021, Joe Biden claimed that the Capitol building was a sacred place for Representative Adam Schiff and Senator Bob Menendez and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called it the Temple of Democracy. Bovard says members of Congress apparently feel entitled to impunity from protests, regardless of how many laws they pass trampling the Constitution. Well, the fence that went up after January 6th was eventually pared back and then removed over the summer and then briefly restored for the Justice for J6 rally on September 18th before being dismantled once more. But he says it should not be erected again. The National Guard deployment and fencing off of the Capitol symbolizes the demonization of dissent that became turbocharged since early last year when the fence first went up and tens of thousands of National Guard troops took over Washington. Some members of Congress championed keeping the fence permanently, turning Capitol Hill into the equivalent of a supermax prison. Speaker Pelosi said every day on Capitol Hill should be a national security event, thereby supposedly denying Americans access to Congress in perpetuity. But there has been pushback, he says, even from staunch Biden supporters. Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton from Washington, D.C., has been one of the most liberal members of Congress, and complained last year that the fencing makes the United States look like a totalitarian regime trying to keep its own people out. Even the American Civil Liberties Union recognizes that Congress hiding behind a fence projects the kind of message that heads of autocratic regimes send by cloistering themselves behind or away from their populaces in armed fortresses. Bovard says nowadays any threat of domestic terrorism can apparently justify the preemptive destruction of freedom of speech. 
Last year on Inauguration Day, only too many protests with 100 or fewer participants were allowed at spots far from the Capitol. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser justified the crackdown. We have a special responsibility that there is a peaceful transition of power in our country. After four years of endless howling that Trump was literally Hitler, Biden took power with a level of suppression, a suppression of dissent, and a display of military force that resembled an old-time Kremlin May Day parade more than an American, a traditional American inauguration. Instead of a massive throng of citizens watching the swearing-in, only a small smattering of Washington elites were permitted at the ceremony. In lieu of a live audience, Biden spoke that day to 190,000 flags surrounded by daunting fences. Now, last year, Pelosi kept the fence in the National Guard long after any viable threat existed to the Capitol. Perhaps the menacing trappings were designed to help Biden prove that he needed a new domestic terrorism law to prevent Trump supporters from conquering D.C. And James Bovard asks, will a resurrected fence spur Biden to appeal to Congress for a new law repressing his political opposition? If Congress can fence out the American people any time there is a rumor of pending protest... Will school boards follow suit and erect barbed wire around buildings prior to meetings? That would burnish the, bur- the Biden FBI effort to treat parents' harsh complaints against school board members as terrorist threats. Maybe members of Congress can get a detachment of Capitol Police with bayonets and a roll of barbed wire to escort them to their home districts and keep constituents at a safe distance during public meetings. I mean, the Capitol Police already announced plans to set up branch offices in Florida and California, and their operations from D.C. will be secret, thanks to their exemption from the Freedom of Information Act that applies to other federal law enforcement agencies. Tolerating the banishment of protesters from Capitol Hill is especially unwise after the harrowing example of Canada. Bovard writes, after angry truckers converged on Ottawa, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau decided that honking horns was the legal equivalent of hijacking airplanes and declared martial law. The Washington Post portrayed the subsequent police crackdown as largely restrained, even though police used pepper spray, stun grenades, and other anti-riot weapons on mostly or actually entirely peaceful protesters. Video from intrepid reporters show police horses plowing into crowds, knocking people down, police brutally beating and kneeing a downed protester, and cops threatening to arrest a lady from Alberta who merely sought to get a cup of coffee. Trudeau's lackeys lackeys have warned that the government will hound and financially cripple or destroy anyone involved in the protest. And his point is, if if it happens in Canada, it could happen here especially since much of the American media despises anti-Biden protesters. Let's go, Brandon. A poll found that 65% of likely Democrat voters approved of Trudeau's brutal crushing of the the trucker protest. And James Bovard says this epitomizes how policies that were once considered authoritarian prior to Biden's elections, election rather, are now welcomed by many voters who feared that Trump was hiding under their bed. So he says members of Congress may be comforted by a high fence that keeps angry Americans far from their cherished turf. But they should remember what heavyweight champion Joe Lewis said before fighting a fleet challenger. He can run, but he can't hide. Congress conduct protests on Monday, but plenty of members will be knocked out on November 8th, the midterm election day.
I'll have a link to Bovard's article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. If, <laughs> excuse me, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'd like to invite you to do so. Not because it's such a privilege and an honor to get an email from me every day that I do the show, but I will send it right to your email inbox. But because the, the articles that I include in those show notes have links that will in turn take you deeper and deeper into any of these subjects that we cover in the course of the program. And if you really want to, you know, own your own worldview, you got to be willing to do some digging. I'm not saying you have to agree either with me or with any of the commentators that I share. But I definitely try to find something that's outside of that uh, lockstep narrative that everybody knows and nods in unison and chants in unison with. Look, I don't, I don't know a kinder way or I don't know a better way to, to beg you to please use caution in what you allow, in who you allow to influence your thinking. And I get it, it's, it's tough. I'm susceptible to it too, okay? I'm, I'm not saying this like someone who's sitting here immune from any, you know, kind of manipulation. But I want you to understand, I have been, I have been watching the flow of propaganda from all sides of the political spectrum. I've been watching it closely for the better part of the last 30 years. And I'm pretty good at spotting it. But even I find myself going, oh, there I go. Now I'm now I'm actually starting to, you know, run along with the crowd here. What are we running for? I don't know. Let's just keep running. Everybody's running this direction. You know, I referenced the, the war on reality. And I think that uh, this is this is what's happening right now. We are we're in a time where it is very difficult for most of us to really get our minds around what is reality. And if, if you're going by what's going, what's being broadcast to you in mainstream media, <clears throat> I hate to break it to you, but your grip on reality is more tenuous than you think. So you got to be a little bit of a contrarian. You got to be a skeptic. You got to be willing to ask the right questions and then fearlessly follow the truth, even if it leads you into uncomfortable territory. But most of all, I want you to know I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. Got to stay just a little bit salty. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could join me today. Oh, man, it's, it's a busy news cycle, right? There's a ton of stuff popping off right now. One thing you will find on this program that you may not find elsewhere is that uh, I do a, a very studied effort to avoid the scourge of the 21st century, which is being a person who is so desperate to maintain social status that I will instantly adopt whatever opinion I see the elites pushing. Nope, not going to do it. And I'm guessing that you listen to programs like this one because truth matters to you. 
So in interest of pursuing that truth, let's uh, let's jump right in, shall we? Our program is brought to you by great sponsors, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAmmo.com, LifesavingFood.com, and SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. There are links to every single one of these uh, sponsors in my show notes, which you'll find at the BrianHydeShow.com. So one of the things I want to start out with today is... Uh, the shift in the narrative, and oh, it is so interesting. I don't want to sound too conspiratorial here, but I'm sure this will sound like tinfoil hat territory to some folks. But isn't it convenient how the public's attention somehow has shifted away from the collapsing COVID narrative to Putin and Ukraine? I mean, do you remember six weeks ago when everybody was getting fired and ostracized and canceled and censored and fined thousands of dollars and excluded from all public life because they were opposing COVID mandates and then suddenly no one cares at all. No one cares anymore. Isn't that funny how that works? Connor Boyack actually had had a tweet over the weekend about how experts who claim to follow the science were really just cultish people seeking power and popularity. Then the political winds and polling, but not the science, shifted, so they changed their tune, and now they're trying to whitewash their authoritarian, unscientific advocacy. I see it happening, too. Maybe you do as well. Well, let's talk about it. Vasco Kohlmeyer, in a piece published on AmericanThinker.com, says, Game-changing news has emerged out of Iceland. As of this week, Iceland is the first country in the world to completely drop all COVID measures. There will be no lockdowns or social restrictions. There will be no mandatory COVID testing. And if you happen to catch COVID, you do not have to isolate. There will be no vaccine passports, no vaccine mandates. Anyone, regardless of their vaccination status, can travel to the country with no test required. The unvaccinated will not face any form of discrimination or exclusion from society. In other words, Iceland is going back to life as it was before COVID. Now, this by itself would be astounding enough, given that Iceland is in the midst of a massive COVID surge and posting record cases even as we speak. Now, in case you didn't know, the vaccination rate in Iceland is some 80% of the total population, which means about 90% of the adult population is fully vaccinated. Obviously, the vaccines have done nothing to stop or even slow down the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Quite on the contrary, they seem to have led to its increase. Not only has the government of Iceland decided to drop all COVID restrictions and vaccine requirements, but the Ministry of Health issued remarkable new guidelines on how to deal with the virus. The country's health authorities have advised Icelanders that as many people as possible need to be infected with the virus as the vaccines are not enough. And Vasco Kohlmeyer says, did you hear this? Do you hear what they're saying? Iceland's government now tells its people that it's good to contract COVID. In other words, Iceland's government has decided to handle COVID through herd immunity derived from natural infection. And that marks the complete negation of the official COVID narrative, which was accepted as the conventional wisdom by nearly every government for the last two years. So the narrative ran something like this. People should try to avoid getting infected at all costs and wait instead until they can get infected with the injected rather, sorry, Freudian slip, with the hastily concocted experimental vaccines from Pfizer, Moderna and such. 
Now, however, governments are increasingly encouraging their victims. Sorry. Another Freudian slip. Their citizens to forget about the vaccines and instead go out and take on the virus with their own immune system. What in the world? Says Vasco Kohlmeyer. They're saying this after two years of heavy-handed lockdowns, restriction, and closures have caused untold economic, social, and psychological damage. They changed their mind after having conducted a global vaccination crusade that saw more than 60% of the Earth's population injected with inadequately tested vaccines that have proved to be less than effective and that have needlessly killed what could be millions of people worldwide. Yes, he has a link to that. You might want to check it out. The point is, as Vasco Kohlmeyer says, this is undoubtedly one of the greatest debacles in the annals of man. These were scientists who advocated herd immunity through natural... There were scientists, rather, who advocated herd immunity through natural infection at the outset. But if you recall, those voices were ridiculed, censored, discredited, fired, and canceled. Instead, one after another, governments across the world seized the false narrative and proceeded to impose a cascade of disastrous measures that inflicted unprecedented damage on the human race. Now, in the weeks ahead, they will try to excuse themselves by claiming that the virus has changed and it's less dangerous than it was at the outset. And this is true to some degree. The fact, however, remains that the virus never posed a great danger to most people. Its survival rate for non-confined individuals was some 99.7%. It posed virtually no threat to healthy children. It posed only relatively low risk to active healthy people of productive age. Now certainly the threat was not sufficient to justify wide-scale school and business closures and other onerous measures. Nor did it justify indiscriminate mass vaccination of children and healthy people with with the dangerous and deficient vaccines. Those policies were a gargantuan mistake that could cost untold trillions of dollars and countless lives. And he says, now that the false narrative is collapsing, those responsible for this debacle should be asked to explain themselves. But here's the kicker. These people, however, are very cunning, and they're already in the process of skillfully diverting the public's attention to another place with a new narrative. Today, they are all talking about Vladimir Putin as the greatest threat to mankind, hoping to inflame people's passions so they will not notice that COVID has somehow gone away, even though a short while ago we were all allegedly in danger of dying from it. Now, Vladimir Putin is the greatest evil we have ever faced. And as the added bonus, they'll be able to blame him for the inflation, depression, and other catastrophes brought by two years of destructive COVID policies. The COVID-19 crisis was a government-imposed disaster from beginning to the end. The virus, which was created by the Chinese state in cooperation with Dr. Fauci and his friends, either escaped or was released from the biolab in Wuhan. Now, the Ukrainian crisis is likewise a government-induced disaster. The feckless Joe Biden, Anthony Blinken, and their global cronies provoked Putin by pushing the idea of NATO at the doorstep of Russia. And this was unacceptable to the Russians, in the same way that Mexico entering the Warsaw Pact would be unacceptable to the United States. Putin asked for assurances that there will be no more NATO countries on the Russian border. Now, this was not an unreasonable request, but they told him to go home and pound sand. Now, we should not be surprised at Putin's anger. 
If he overreacts, the ensuing catastrophe will have been sparked by the provocateurs who were needlessly poking the Russian bear in the eye. Vasco Kohlmeyer says both COVID and Russia are false narratives. In a way, they're one of a piece. The passions and emotions evoked by the latter are being used to hide and obscure the collapse of the former. Well, that's something to think about, right? And I know this is, you know, this may seem like a lot to, to process. So don't don't feel like, well, I've got to either make my mind up right now to agree or disagree with what, what you're sharing here. I'm asking you to do something much more important, and that is really take the time to noodle this one out for yourself. And one of the best rules of thumb that you and I can keep in mind is ask yourself, what do I know about this person or know about this situation or about this subject that wasn't told to me by someone else? And if the answer is, well, very little or almost nothing, then be really cautious before you, uh, you know, hitch yourself to that star and, and, and go for a ride. There's so much deception going on right now. And, and I have to say this, you don't believe, do not believe me. Don't take me at face value either. This is why I provide links to these articles in my show notes so you can check it out for yourself. See, is it a credible source? Do, do the sources, sources add up? How serious are you about owning your worldview? Because you can't be passive about this kind of thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, which is conveniently located in St. George, Utah. That's good news for my Southern Utah listeners. If you or someone you love knows how to running a sewing machine or a long-arm quilter or a serger or any other sewing implement, this is a story you need to know about because not only do they sell great machines like handy quilter long-arm machines, and uh, they also sell the thread, they sell the fabric. How about Cuddles fabric? Still kind of cool in some places. Anyway, you can get 35% off Cuddles fabric. They also service everything that they sell. Now, this is important. They also will train you how to use your machine. Baby lock. They, they do embroidery. There's so much there all under one roof. It's a family-owned business. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners, and they are wonderful people who stand ready to help you. Click on the link I provide in my show notes for sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Get better acquainted with them. You'll be glad you did. You know, we hear the word privilege a lot these days, but the meaning of that word seems to escape the folks who use it the most. I've got a great article here from Sheldon Richman. Uh, this is uh, from from a, a commentary that he shared, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, the Future of Freedom Foundation's website. Very good stuff and a very timely article on privilege. So he asks, or he, or he points out rather, one of the most abused words in English is privilege. Observe how indiscriminately this word is spoken and written. For example, in some quarters, all straight white men without exception are said to be privileged, which seems absurd. 
But he says practically all we hear about these days is privilege. Who has it and who doesn't? Well, not exactly, because he says those who are said not to have it are often called underprivileged. And then he says, I think it was the late P.T. Bauer, the great free market development economist, who pointed out how peculiar a word that is. Underprivileged. Wouldn't that mean insufficiently privileged? And an insufficiently privileged person is nevertheless privileged. No. Apart from the problems of measuring and comparing privileges among people, it's what people really mean by the word. Now he says, I think not. Semantics aside, we face a more serious matter with this concept, namely that vastly disparate things are tossed into that bin. Some alleged privileges are not privileges at all. Rather, they indicate the absence of unjust impediments, such as those mostly imposed by the state. In those cases, we should focus not on the unimpeded, but on those who are unjustly burdened. And here's a cool distinction. The unimpeded are not privileged. They're just free, at least in that one respect. Those whom the state burdens are unfree. For example, if black and other members of minorities are more likely than white people to be harassed by the police for trifles or nothing at all, that is an outrageous injustice against the victims. But the unharassed white people are not thereby privileged, not even in a relative sense. In that respect, they are as they should be. The problem is that everyone else is not in the same position. That lack of equal treatment, as unjust as it is, does not necessarily indicate the presence of privilege. Now again, if a privilege is something that is granted that the recipient has no inherent right to, then not being harassed by the police is in no way a privilege. No one deserves to be harassed by the cops. On the contrary, one has a right not to be harassed. Now, not every contact with police counts as harassment, of course. If one is stopped from accosting an innocent person, the aggressor can't be said to have been harassed. But his point is that this doesn't mean that privilege doesn't exist. Our society is rife with it, but it behooves us to be clear on its nature. Sheldon Richmond says, as I said, a privilege is something bestowed to which the recipient has no inherent right. Privileges then come in two forms, legitimate and illegitimate. So if a parent wants to give their child an allowance that he or she can use freely, we might call that a privilege. But it is legitimate because the money the parents wish the money is the parents to give as they wish. Now on the other hand, if the government grants a cash subsidy to a firm or industry, it's illegitimate because the politicians give away other people's money to which they have no right. Using the threat of force, they transfer wealth from its producers to non-producers. And this is true of all government transfers, no matter how elevated the politicians' motives might be. Sheldon Richmond says, For a long time, state governments and the federal government provided low-interest loans and mortgage insurance to white homeowners only. The governments not only Those governments not only treated the two groups unequally, but they also positively subsidized the whites. Whites unjust, unjustly got a leg up while blacks were ignored or worse. Now that was a scandalous race-based government privilege with long-term consequence. But not all subsidies are outright cash grants. If the government does a crony industry or firm a favor by imposing a tax or a tariff on imports, that too is a privilege. Ultimately, the unjust burden is imposed on consumers who pay the higher prices, which is the purpose of the tariff. 
Foreign firms will also be unjustly harmed. The domestic recipients of the privilege will have no right to the loot. Another form of privilege is government regulation of peaceful commerce that is more easily borne by large companies than by small ones. Now, Sheldon Richmond says the early 19th century French classical liberal economists understood that government by its very nature as the taxing authority is a dispenser of privileges and the source of class conflict. Now, the conflict obviously is between what the liberals called the taxpayers and the tax eaters. In the liberals' eyes, all industrious people, including the unsubsidized organizers of business firms, were in the tax-paying tax paying class, rather, while those who lived off them, rather than working, were tax eaters. Now, the latter class did not consist of the poor, by and large, but rather the cronies of government officials, or the king. Marx acknowledged his debt to these bourgeois, bourgeois liberals by originating class theory, but he either misunderstood it or intentionally twisted it to put all business owners, not just the cronies, in the parasitic class. So Sheldon Richmond says, without reservation, we should favor the repeal of all actual state privileges, while also calling to an end to all the burdens that the state imposes on anyone. And we can do all this without regarding the unburdened as privileged. I guess this is one of the reasons why I am such a strong advocate of freedom is the answer to so many of the questions before us. Well, that freedom won't work if you're it only works if you're a straight white male. No, it doesn't. It works for everybody. But I just I describe freedom or at least in this sense, I'm going to describe freedom as freedom from having that government coercion hanging over your head or put another way. Freedom from having unnecessary influence from government in your life. Now, if government is what's paying your rent, if government is paying for your food via, you know, the uh, EBT card, you are, uh, you're, you're being supported. Yes, it's meeting your needs, but it also comes with conditions. And some of those conditions are very uh, counterintuitive. For instance, a single mom raising a couple of kids, if she is to find a guy and get married to him, you know, they will cut off her benefits. The presumption being, well, you've got somebody there to provide for you. And as good as that is, it also provides a huge disincentive for those on welfare. So, you know, it's, it's okay to shack up or it's okay to just have multiple baby daddies, you know, because that'll keep the benefits coming. And of course the bureaucrats who dispense these benefits um, maybe I'm maybe I'm reading this wrong, but they seem pretty happy to sign up more people because it means job security for them. Their their approach to fixing a problem is to ensure the problem stays around for as long as possible. Because in the end, it, it equates with job security for them. Greater freedom, <clears throat> greater ability to solve your own problems, free from government interference. Less dependency on government. I don't know if that sounds like privilege to some, but that's definitely the path that'll get you closer to a happy, productive, and free life. I'll have a link to Sheldon Richmond's article in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I uh, I want to balance out the remainder of this hour of the show with a couple of things to, to get you thinking and also uh, that, that will hopefully inspire you to stand firm when it comes to uh, standing for your own freedom. I know for a lot of us, the battle between freedom and tyranny seems very real right now. And it's, it may be because, you know, you have been fighting against all the COVID tyranny for the last couple of years. It may be because you see what's happening in Ukraine as, you know, evidence that, oh, tyranny is on the march. And both things may be true. Scott McPherson has an excellent article here about uh, tanks and planes are simply not enough to keep people from standing for their freedom. It's, this is titled, Thus Always to Tyrants. And he says, in 2018, U.S. Representative Eric Swalwell from California made headlines when he casually referred to nukes as a reasonable way to arbitrate a dispute with millions of Americans who might resist enforcement of a federal ban on the private ownership of semi-automatic rifles. It's not not the 18th century, he snarked, dismissing the notion that armed citizens were in any position to oppose his agenda. President Joe Biden, the uniter, needed less than six months in the White House before he was telling reporters that resistance to tyranny is a chimera among gun owners. Because if you wanted or you think you need to have weapons to take on the government, you need F-15s and maybe some nuclear weapons. Now, Biden and Swalwell and plenty of other politicians speak like Roman emperors these days, as if they were destined to bring fire and sword to rule or ruin. They falsely pledge fidelity to a constitution they consider well beneath their loftier ambitions. Bigger and more powerful government has led inevitably to more interference in the lives of the people who see their freedoms and living standards slipping away. Nearly two-thirds of Americans believe the country is off on the wrong track, according to a recent Reuters-Ipsos survey. Events in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and throughout the Western world reveal a universal contempt held by progressive politicians for the people they claim to serve. The left wing of Western polities has now embraced authoritarianism as its ethos. Concern for personal liberty and society's fabric are now condemned as hateful and seditious, and likely the product of sinister foreign agents. Liberal ideas about free and open debate and honest disagreement are rejected, replaced by the clenched fist of the state. The CIA's deep dive program has been collecting information on U.S. citizens for years. The Department of Homeland Security has arrogated the right to determine which ideas ideas are acceptable and which are considered a terrorism threat. But patriotic dissent is an appeal for reason and peaceful coexistence. That's why hef- leftists hate free speech and the free thinking that derive that drives it. Rather, if men are to be precluded from offering their sentiments on a matter, George Washington told his army officers in 1783, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. Now the left reviles private ownership of firearms as well, and for similar reasons. Just as free speech shines a light on the machinations of would-be tyrants and their useful idiots in media, academia, entertainment, and corporate boardrooms, the idea of an armed citizenry, the militia, is that it might serve as a counterpoise to state violence. The Declaration of Independence, the philosophical antecedent to our Constitution, states that we are each endowed with certain unalienable rights, and that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to our liberties— It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. 
So opposing tyranny is not just wise, it is just. And Scott McPherson says the preferred way to accomplish this end is through the ballot box, but that might not be enough. Like the government of King George, our federal behemoth is a Byzantine monster comprised of an alphabet soup of agencies and trains of bureaucrats sent hither to harass our people and eat out their substance. Sun Tzu wrote, Those skilled in war bring the enemy to the field of battle and are not brought there by him. And Scott McPherson says, Arrogant at small minds, drunk with power, the images of power, all their fighter jets and ICBMs, presume foolish opponents fighting along static lines, adhering to the enemy's rules, and producing nothing but dead heroes and martyrs. Ignored are the many examples running right up to the present day of partisan fighters successfully resisting great armies. The mightiest forces have been beaten or checked by deftly employed guerrilla tactics and an ever-watchful eye on the grandest prize. Ooh, that sounds mildly revolutionary, doesn't it? So be it. That's still great commentary from Scott, uh, from Scott McPherson. Okay, now I'm going to advance a point of view that is not in lockstep with the mainstream narrative right now, but I think Pat Buchanan actually has a view worth considering when he asks, did we provoke Putin's war in Ukraine? Pat Buchanan writes, when when Russia's Vladimir Putin demanded the U.S. rule out Ukraine as a future member of the NATO alliance, the U.S. archly replied, NATO has an open-door policy. Any nation, including Ukraine, may apply for membership and be admitted. We're not changing that. Now, in the Bucharest Declaration of 2008, NATO had put Ukraine and Georgia ever further east in the Caucasus on a path to membership in NATO and coverage under Article 5 of the treaty, which declares an attack on any one member is an attack on all. Unable to get a satisfactory answer to his demand, Putin invaded and settled the issue. Neither Ukraine nor Georgia will become members of NATO. To prevent that, Russia will go to war, as they did last week. In other words, Putin did exactly what he warned us he would do. Pat Buchanan says, whatever the character of the Russian president now being hotly debated here in the U.S., he has established his credibility. When Putin warns that he will do something, he does it. Just hours into this Russian-Ukraine war, potentially the worst in Europe since 1945, two questions need to be answered. How do we get here? How did we get here, rather? And where do we go from here? Well, Pat Buchanan says, how did we get to where Russia, believing its back is against a wall and the United States, by moving NATO ever closer, put it there, reached a point where it chose war with Ukraine rather than accepting the fate and future it believes the West has in store for Mother Russia? Well, consider between 1989 and 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev let the Berlin Wall be pulled down, Germany be reunited, and all the captive nations of Eastern Europe go free. Having collapsed the Soviet Empire... Gorbachev allowed the Soviet Union to dissolve itself into 15 independent nations. Communism was allowed to expire as the ruling ideology of Russia, the land where Leninism and Bolshevism first took root in 1917. Gorbachev called off the Cold War in Europe by removing all of the causes on Moscow's side of the historic divide. Putin, a former KGB colonel, came to power in 1999 after the disastrous decade-long rule of Boris Yeltsin, who ran Russia into the ground. In that year, Putin watched as America conducted a 78-day bombing campaign on Serbia, the Balkan nation that had historically been a protectorate of Mother Russia. 
That year, also, three former Warsaw Pact nations, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland, were brought into NATO. Against whom these countries were to be protected by U.S. arms and NATO alliance? Well, the question was fairly asked. And the question seemed to be answered fully in 2004 when Slovenia, Slovakia, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Romania, and Bulgaria were also admitted into NATO, a grouping that included three former republics of the USSR itself, as well as three more former Warsaw Pact nations. Then in 2008 came the Bucharest Declaration that put Georgia and Ukraine, both bordering on Russia, on a path to NATO membership. Georgia the same year attacked its seceded province of South Ossetia, where Russian troops were acting as peacekeepers, killing some. This triggered a Putin counterattack through the Roki Tunnel in North Ossetia that liberated South Ossetia and moved Georgia all the way to Gori, the birthplace of Stalin. George W. Bush, who had pledged to end tyranny in our world, did nothing. After briefly occupying part of Georgia, the Russians departed, but stayed as protectors of the South Ossetians. Now, Buchanan says the U.S. government has declared, or the U.S. establishment, rather, has declared this to have been a Russian war of aggression. But an EU investigation blamed Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili for starting the war. In 2014, a democratically elected pro-Russian president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, was overthrown in Kiev and replaced by a pro-Western regime. Rather than lose Sevastopol, Russia's historic naval base in Crimea, Putin seized the peninsula and declared it Russian territory. Just for context, Teddy Roosevelt stole Panama with similar remorse, which brings us to today. We may think of whatever we may think of Putin, Pat Buchanan says he is no Stalin. He has not murdered millions or created a gulag archipelago. Nor is he irrational as some pundits rail. He does not want a war with us, which would be worse than ruinous to us both. Putin is a Russian nationalist, patriot, traditionalist, and a cold and ruthless realist looking to preserve Russia as the great and respected power it once was, and he believes it can be again. But it cannot be part of that. It cannot be that if NATO expansion doesn't stop or if its sister state of Ukraine becomes part of a military alliance whose proudest boast is that it won the Cold War against the nation Putin has served all his life. I'll have a link to Pat Buchanan's commentary in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Well, if you've hung with me so far, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> this has not been one of the easier shows. Even as I was, was preparing my show notes, I was silently going back and forth in my head. Man, how, how hard do I want to poke the bear on this one? And I decided just to kind of throw caution to the wind. And I'm just going to say what, what I think needs to be said and, and let the chips fall where they may. And I understand this This may very well um, have offended some people. Why, gee, you're just nothing but a Putin apologist. Look, I'm just trying to see the bigger picture here. And what I see very clearly and what I'm trying to avoid and trying to avoid perpetuating myself is this fog of war propaganda campaign that has so many people fired up and ready for war to the point that they are willing to turn a blind eye 
to the very people who have been systematically working to destroy them and their freedoms for the last couple of years under COVID tyranny. Do you think it's going to be any different? Do you think it's going to be, you know, uh, suddenly, you know, as long as we're focused on Putin as as the source of all tyranny in the world, you know, that our, our lot is going to improve? I don't think that's the case. In fact, I'm just going to put this out there. So if I haven't offended anybody yet, this one ought to do it. Would the willing class be really, would the ruling class be willing to start a new world war just to cover up their COVID crimes against humanity? I know how I would answer that question. But before you answer, I'd like you to consider Lou Rockwell and his take on keeping us out of war. He says, events in Ukraine are happening very fast, and if I try to predict what will happen there, my prediction will soon be overtaken by events. But he says, one thing is certain. We need to understand the background of the crisis. And we need to remember the basic principles that should guide American policy. So to understand the background, the best guide is Stephen Cohen, a world-renowned authority on both the Bolsheviks and contemporary Russia. He pointed out in November 2019, for centuries and still today, Russia and large parts of Ukraine have had much in common, like a long territorial border, a shared history, ethnic, linguistic, and other cultural affinities, intimate personal relations, substantial economic trade, and more. Even after the years of escalating conflict between Kiev and Moscow since 2014, many Russians and Ukrainians still think of themselves in familial ways. The United States has almost none of these commonalities with Ukraine. Which is to say that Ukraine is not a vital U.S. interest. As most leaders of both parties, Republican and Democrats alike, and much of the U.S. media now declare. On the other hand, Ukraine is a vital Russian interest by any geopolitical or simply human reckoning. And so Lou Rockwell asks, why then is Washington so deeply involved in Ukraine? The proposed nearly $400 million in U.S. military aid to Kiev would mean, of course, even more intrusive involvement. And why is Ukraine so deeply involved in Washington in a different way? That it's become a pretext for attempts to, uh, you know, for the attempts to uh, try to impeach Donald Trump. Well, the short but essential answer is Washington's decision, taken by President Bill Clinton in the 1990s, to expand NATO eastward from Germany and eventually to Ukraine itself. And Lou Rockwell says, ever since, both Democrats and Republicans have insisted that Ukraine is a vital U.S. national interest. Now, those of us who opposed that folly warned it would lead to dangerous conflicts with Moscow, conceivably even to war. Imagine Washington's reaction, we pointed out, if Russian military bases begin to appear on Canada's or Mexico's borders with America. And we weren't wrong. An estimated 13,000 souls have already died in the Ukrainian-Russian war in the Donbass, and some 2 million people have been displaced. Now, the propagandists for brain-dead people like Biden like to say that Putin had Ukraine surrounded, but in fact, the U.S. and its NATO satellites had Russia surrounded. In the years before the current crisis, we had ample opportunity to reach a compromise settlement. Instead, we kept the option of membership in NATO open to Ukraine and overthrew a Ukrainian president who was pro-Russian. Putin drew his red line at the Kremlin back in November of 2021. 
The threat of our board, the threat on our western borders is rising, as we have said multiple times. In our dialogue with the United States and its allies, we will insist on developing concrete agreements prohibiting any further eastward expansion of NATO and the placement of their, their of weapons in the immediate vicinity of Russian territory. End quote. Now, Lou Rockwell points out that comes pretty close to an ultimatum. And NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg backhanded the president of Russia for issuing it, saying, It's only Ukraine and 30 NATO allies that decide when Ukraine is ready to join NATO. Russia has no veto. Russia has no say. Russia has no right to establish a sphere of influence trying to control their neighbors. End quote. Now, Lou Rockwell says Putin is nobody's fool and he has decided to act decisively to free Russia from encirclement. Invasions kill people, and this is sad, but this is the way European power politics operates and has operated for hundreds of years. In fact, this is why George Washington, in his farewell address, warned us to stay out of them. Quote, Europe has a set of primary interests which to us, which to us have none or a very remote relation. Hence, She must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be unwise to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary vicissitudes of her politics or the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendships or enmities. End quote. Yeah, nobody can say we weren't warned. So Lou Rockwell says whether Russia controls Ukraine is none of our business. In particular, economic sanctions are a bad idea. They are immoral. As Mike Rozoff says, sanctions are wrong for the same reason that dropping a hydrogen bomb on Moscow would be wrong. They target innocent people. They are wrong for the same reason that attacking the Taliban government in Afghanistan was wrong when bin Laden was the accused. They're wrong for the same reason that attacking Iraq was wrong when Saddam Hussein was the accused target. They're wrong for the same reason that bombing Libya was wrong when Gaddafi was the accused target. So not only are sanctions wrong, but they don't work. They disrupt the world economy. They reduce the chances of a peaceful settlement. Rachel Lloyd, a policy analyst at the Russian Public Affairs Committee, says whether sanctions work or not is no great secret. Time and again, the U.S. has clung to sanctions as its de facto power of tough diplomacy. Yet Washington is failing to recognize the obvious reality. They simply do not work other than perhaps as a tool to bully with or which to play to the crowds. In fact, says Lou Rockwell, tough-sounding economic policies have been shown to almost never have the desired effect against America's adversaries. Instead, all too often, sanctions bolster those in power who use the threat of Washington's overreaching in their domestic affairs as a way to influence national opinion and actually shore up their support. The U.S.'s efforts to throttle the economy of any country or government that stands against Congress's vision for how the world should work has brought it into conflict with a number of nations. This has been seen in Iran, where the sanctions put in place after the 1979 revolution fueled the Shia majority's, majority country's aggressive policies in the Middle East. Likewise in Cuba, where sanctions have existed for over 60 years, and yet the nation is still dominated by an authoritarian regime. Business people will point to the fact that the effects of sanctions can go beyond the targeted sector and the individual, hurting Americans well outside the original sanctioned sphere. While the United States may have aimed to restrict business and trade with a particular company and or individual, 
All too often, the effects of the sanction seep into other facets of the economy and diplomacy as the targeted country modifies its policies and approaches so as to keep itself afloat. Now, for Americans, that means reduced revenues for U.S. companies and for those who work for them, as well as forfeited opportunities that statistics alone can't measure. It also puts unnecessary pressure on Americans living abroad, as well as tourists and exchange students, who then have to jump through hoops to complete even the most basic tasks related to banking, finance, and visas. And for Americans hoping to follow the American dream, starting or expanding businesses or working abroad, sanctions become a barrier to that dream. The moment a business account has a connection to Russia or another sanctioned country, banks stop wanting to have anything to do with it. When this pinnacle of American entrepreneurism is put under strain due to policies proven to be ineffective at best, Lou Rockwell says there is a glaring problem. So he says, a far better and wiser classical liberal foreign policy of neutrality and non-intervention. Set forth with great eloquence by Richard Cobden, John Bright, the Manchester School, and other little Englanders of the 19th century by the anti-imperialist classical liberals of the turn of the 20th century in Britain and the United States and by the old right from the 1930s to the 1950s. His point is simply this. Neutrality limits conflicts instead of escalating them. Neutral states cannot swell their power through war and militarism or murder and plunder of the citizens of other states. This is The Brian Hyde Show.